Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Welcome to the break room. So I am uh, y'all's host for this evening. So uh, I'm Dr. Brian Dixon. I am a practicing child and adolescent psychiatrist um, in the great state of Texas. Well, I say great state of Texas. You know how we are. Um, and uh, it, it generally is a pretty good state. So um, coming out of uh, coming out of Fort Worth, uh, I get the opportunity to work with lots of kids and adults to help them live their best lives, and I have the best job in the world. Um, the Break Room is a podcast about mental health for Black folks in the workplace. Uh, we try our best to always make the content relevant uh, and try to keep it up to date. Um, as always, if you um, have any questions, uh, we welcome questions in the uh, chat box, or you can also email us at the Break Room T H e-breakroom at living-corporate.com because we're part of the living corporate empire. And so uh, we are super stoked to be here tonight. Um, uh, I get to hold it down for the whole entire team. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Obama Shigbin for giving me all of the research that we're going to talk about tonight uh, for frontline workers. And so we'll get to that soon. And the way the break room works, y'all, it's a conversation. So imagine if you were back in uh, the workplace, which some of y'all will be going back into, um, and you're going to the break room and you get something to eat and you're just kind of chit-chatting with you know, your friends, um, catching up on the news. Uh, that's kind of how we've structured the podcast. 
we always start off with the uh, spill in the tea. And so I have a, an idea that I want to uh, talk to you all about is current events and our take on the current events. And I'm going to give my opinions. Um, and then we go into the topic of the, um, the uh, web episode. And today we're going to talk about frontline workers uh, and talk about the research there. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we always take any audience questions. Uh, if there are any questions, like I said, you can put those in the chat or you can email us. And then last but not least, uh, we talk about the last nerve, which is that one or two or three things uh, that uh, have gotten on your nerve for the week that uh, you need to get off your chest. And so we set a time limit and then we just go ham for uh, the 60 to 90 seconds, depending on what's going on. And so um, hopefully tonight uh, y'all will enjoy that. So um, let's start off. Uh, normally with the tea, we go back and forth. But since it's just me tonight, um, I'm going to um, uh, give you my opinion uh, and uh, the tea. Uh, I don't know if y'all have been on Twitter. I don't know if y'all have been paying attention at all, uh, but there is a Pulitzer Prize winning MacArthur Fellowship Grant, Genius Grant recipient named Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she is awesome. So I follow her on Twitter. Um, she uh, coordinated with the New York Times to create a project, a journalistic project called the 1619 Project, uh, where they talk about uh, the funding of the country being when black slaves uh, around, uh, arrived on these shores, um, and it's gotten a ton of pushback from conservative circles. Uh, and when I say conservative circles, it's not, uh, I know I have conservative friends, I know conservatives. This isn't conservatives, this is racist people. And so uh, the tea today is, what do we do about it? Because um, uh, uh, Dr. Hannah Jones was getting ready to uh, be considered for a tenured journalistic uh, journalism position at the UNC Chapel Hill campus which also happens to be her alma mater. So in other words, she went through school and she paid them money to get um, an education, use that education to better all of our understanding about who we are as a people and as a country. She has the opportunity and reading through the article, it showed where she went through the process that all academic people do. So for y'all that are um, at the corporate workplace instead of the academic workplace, the, in a nutshell, um, when you're in academia, you're expected to not only teach, but also produce stuff, research, things like that. And uh, she did all of that. She has all of the acc accolades. The problem is when she got there uh, and she uh, submitted her application um, and got support, the Board of Regents, or maybe the Board of Governors, I don't know what they call themselves, uh, but they're, they're racist. Let's just be clear about that. They denied um, her ability to get tenure, which typically in most places is not a board level function. It's more of a faculty um, decision. So the faculty will get together and say, hey, we want this person. They're really awesome. And then they will submit it to whoever the board is of the university. But it's mainly a rubber stamp. That's what happens. Well, a lot of people on the Board of Regents at UNC uh, in the UNC system didn't like that. And they actually pushed back. And so, yeah, so I think that's uh, a lot of nonsense and bullshit. And I cannot believe after after a whole year. So today is the um, the uh, remembrance, the one year remembrance of the George uh, Floyd murder. I cannot believe after all of this, after all of the marches, after all of the discussions about being more inclusive and equitable and all the people coming out and giving uh, black companies money and let's do better in venture capitalists, all of this, we are a year into it and we still have people showing their ass. 
Like it just blows my mind and it's completely to me irresponsible um, because what are you trying, what, what is the board of governors saying to the black students at UNC Chapel Hill? What they're saying is we are going to take your money and we don't care. And it's unfortunate because the faculty do care. So most faculty in major institutions, major um, colleges, they care. So I'm, I'm sad for the students. I'm sad for uh, Dr. Hannah Jones. Uh, keep your chin up. Uh, it's going to get better. Um, hold people accountable. At the end of the day, this is the time where we hold our white allies accountable. So a couple of podcasts ago, we did and we talked about um, creating and cultivating allyship and then holding allies accountable. And this is a prime time to hold allies accountable. And so that's the tea today, y'all. Um, I'm just it, it, follow it on Twitter. You'll see it if you um, uh, if you do follow uh, Dr. Hannah Jones. Make sure to give her a shout out because uh, she is being amazingly graceful in all of this, and she's just kind of taking a step back. And I think that's badass because that's that is class personified. Instead of getting all into the weeds, she's just taking a step back. So give her a shout out if you if you can. So that is the tea today. We're gonna mosey on over to the topic of the day. So we're going to talk about frontline workers and uh, some of the research behind that. Um, first off, as uh, Dr. Lawanda always says, we have to acknowledge our own privilege, right? So um, a little bit about me, and then we're going to jump into the topic. Um, and like I said, if you have any questions, put them in the chat. Um, uh, so I grew up in East Texas, grew up super poor. Um, uh, but one of the things that I did when I was 16 is I got my first job at a place called Eckerd Drugs. Some of y'all may remember that. Uh, it's kind of like Rite Aid or CVS before they became um, a uh, household name and popped up on every corner, um, uh, especially in the South. So, uh, so Ecker Drug um, uh, was my first job and I got to work at the front register and then I went to the photo lab back when pictures cost like 25 cents a picture and it was really expensive. Then I moved back to the back to the pharmacy. And uh, I was essentially a frontline worker. That was where I would open the store, I would order, I would unload the truck, I would clean the toilet. Um, and y'all, public toilets are nasty because some of y'all are just nasty. I'm just, I'm just saying, right? And um, since then, I went to college and medical school. And so now I don't have to do a lot of the frontline work because as a psychiatrist, I can, um, I am kind of a tertiary uh, it takes a few steps most times to get to me. And so while I'm not frontline, um, in certain circumstances, psychiatrists can be essential. So if you go into the ER or a psychiatric ER, you'll run into a psychiatrist. But um, what this pandemic showed us is that there are some folks who don't have that privilege. There are some folks who are on the front lines. Um, they could not call in because maybe they didn't have the time or they're not in the position to be able to do so. Uh, maybe uh, they're... Uh, unfortunately, the breadwinner, right? They're the sole um, person in the house that has to provide. And so as a result, a lot of those folks still had to go to work, even when we didn't know anything about this virus. And it put them in a position where they were exposing themselves or getting themselves exposed to two certain things. And so we want to give a shout out to those folks. Um, uh, and at the end of the, uh, uh, the podcast, we want to make sure that we talk action items. What can we do as listeners, as corporate listeners, to make sure that those people who are on the front lines are, are well taken care of? So the first thing we need to cover is what is the difference between an essential worker and a frontline worker? Uh, and we tend to use these terms interchangeably, but for this discussion, 
we want to make sure that we categorize the frontline worker as a subcategory of essential worker. So what is an essential worker? So what is the overall definition? It's someone who, quote, uh, can conduct a range of operations and services that are typically essential to cr continued critical infrastructure viability. And so uh, that includes people like um, housekeeping in the hospital setting, right? Um, especially like the ER. So when you go into the ER, you sit on a bed, at some point you get up and you leave either to go into the hospital or to go home. Well, somebody has to quote unquote, turn that room over, um, meaning go in, disinfect, put everything back the way that it was. That is considered an essential uh, worker. Um, and they, uh, especially in the world of COVID, one of the difficulties was we didn't know where that virus was, uh, how it was transmitted. So sometimes it was transmitted through the, uh, we thought it was through the air or sometimes it's on stuff. And so as a result, the people who were cleaning had to be there all the time um, and work overtime because uh, some folks decided, hey, I'm not going to expose myself uh, to that. And they didn't show up to work at all. So the folks who did had to work even overtime. And that type of worker exists in lots of different industries, uh, the tech industry, defense, food and agriculture, transportation, logistics, energy, uh, wastewater, uh, law enforcement, uh, sanitation. All of these folks uh, were being exposed and, um, and uh, potentially uh, uh, giving or not given the support that they needed, given the, uh, the PPE, the uh, personal protective equipment that they needed. And so most people are essential workers. So if you're looking at the workforce, um, uh, um, up to 70% of all workers are essential workers. So they're these folks who are um, critical for the infrastructure of that sector to exist. And so um, in contrast, so those are essential workers. Frontline workers um, are, because remember frontline is a subcategory of essential workers. Um, uh, frontline workers are essential workers who cannot feasibly work from home. Um, uh, and those include all of those folks that I talked about, inclu uh, including cashiers, uh, uh, folks working in production, food workers, and uh, janitors, maintenance workers, that sort of thing. And so some essential workers like doctors, like ER doctors, um, um, may not necessarily, even though sometimes they're frontline, some of them weren't um, interacting with uh, people who were coming in because they were one step removed. Whereas frontline workers are those essential workers that just have to be there. They absolutely have to be there. And so some of the statistics I want to give you. Frontline workers constitute 60% of essential workers and 42% of all workers. Of that group, women are a lower percentage of frontline workers, 39%, than the broader group of all essential workers, but a bigger share in many specific frontline occupations. And when it comes to um, those frontline occupations, some of those include um, uh, um, home health or individual care services. So if you have an older person in your family that you're, that, uh, you're caring for or you're uh, taking care of, um, sometimes you will have a worker who is working with that person directly. And um, that, those workers tend to be um, predominantly women. Uh, the problem is, so think uh, big picture. So again, this is the the uh, living corporate uh, network. Uh, we're talking about being at work and especially in that corporate setting. And in the corporate setting, never, ever forget the socioeconomics of the corporate world. So most CEOs are making, you know, 2000 times the frontline worker. And then those frontline workers, their wages are um, disparate 
depending on race and gender. And so it just so happens that if you are a white guy, you take uh, for every dollar that a white guy makes, um, a black woman makes somewhere around 68 cents. Um, and Latino women make even less, somewhere around 55 to 58 cents. And so um, as a result, they women tend to um, uh, bear the brunt of lower wages in the frontline worker situation. Um, and so the average wages of frontline workers, uh, $21.85, are lower than those of all worker, workers and essential workers. So um, a higher share of frontline workers earn low wages in the bottom quartile, and a smaller share earns higher wages in the top quartile. So in, in a sense, all monies are being skewed towards the bottom, even though they're doing the bulk of what I what did I say earlier? Critical work. Okay? Critical work. So in other words, critical. If it don't happen, then nothing above that can function. So me as a doctor, if if the person can't turn over the room and do it safely, then I can't do my doctoring job, right? Um, if someone doesn't show up to um, um, pick the food or um, process uh, the meat. Uh, I'm, I'm sure y'all remember all of that. Uh, that happened with a lot of those um, meat processing workers getting sick and not showing up to work. And then the douchebags voting on who is sick and who's going to go home and all of that stuff. So it, it we live in a supply chain. Um, and if the folks who are managing uh, the front line aren't there, then the whole chain melts down. And so that's what we saw during the during the pandemic. And so keep in mind the frontline workers on, are on average less well-educated than all workers with a higher share of high school dropouts and lower share having at least a four-year um, college degree. So um, they also have a higher share of minorities, particularly Blacks and Hispanics. And so as a result, um, and uh, keep in mind that racism is trauma and racism is a socioeconomic nightmare because it robs certain people of their ability to make a living uh, and or uh, it's really expensive to be poor. Um, and since unfortunately, because of how we structure our society, whether red redlining and, um, and uh, governmental policies, um, black people and Latino people tend to have less money. And so it's kind of this weird compounding interest of awfulness is like this perfect storm of awfulness uh, that hits us. And so as a result, um, we tend to not have the money um, to go into the neighborhoods to support the schools that are supposed to support the kids. So a lot of the kids end up dropping out and then we, they end up um, being uh, frontline workers um, uh, and um, disproportionately affected when things go bad as it did in this COVID epidemic. And so uh, keep in mind, <clears throat> keep in mind that there's still people, keep in mind that there's still people, right? So even though you're a frontline worker, you're still a person. And one of the awful parts about this particular pandemic is we were unprepared for it. I say unprepared. So for the folks who aren't listening, I'm doing air quotes because we did have a plan. It was under President Obama. They had a whole uh, notebook of it. And, and under the guy who came thereafter, he just said, "Now nah, I'm not going to do it. And so um, uh, we were unprepared for it. And as a result, um, a lot of mixed messaging started to occur. So a lot of people didn't know what to do with the virus. They didn't know what um, shelter in place meant. Um, they didn't know if they could go out. They didn't know that we uh, should wear masks everywhere. Uh, that came, that mask mandate came really, really late. And so as a result, a ton of people were exposed to this virus or people who had the virus. 
And what tends to happen when you can't see something that can kill you, that could be in the room? Well, that's going to make your fight or flight system go sky high, right? You're going to start worrying, oh my gosh, am I going to get sick? Can I take care of my family? Uh, what if I don't go to work? What if I do go to work? All of that trauma and all of that stress is going to show up somewhere. Uh, as they say, the bill always comes due, right? So that stress is going to come up somewhere. And research is suggesting that up to 50% of Americans, uh, and maybe even more, will meet the criteria for depression, anxiety, or PTSD in the next two to three years. And so let me, let me, let me stress that again. Up to half of the population will meet the criteria for depression, anxiety, or PTSD, which it just blows my mind because we don't have that many psychiatrists and therapists and psychologists um, to, to manage all of that. And of course, it hits people on the front line even harder because, again, at the end of the day, everything costs money. And so to get the care that they need, uh, because we have so poorly invested in our mental health infrastructure in this country, there's not enough of us to go around, enough um, treating therapists to go around, uh, counselors to go around. Uh, and then it costs money to see us. And uh, because frontline workers tend to make less money, again, the perfect storm of awfulness. Uh, and I'm going to write that in the chat. Perfect storm of awfulness because it's just awful. And so um, uh, it, uh, building and creating a way to um, uh, conceptualize all of this hurt and all of this trauma. Um, one of the uh, papers that uh, we put in the, the chat that you can um, look through it said that um, it found kind of four blocks of how people, frontline workers, were um, were worried. One was the risk of infection, which I talked about earlier, just being out there. Like, am I going to get it? Being in an enclosed room. Um, I, can I go to the grocery store? Uh, how do I get food? How do I take care of myself? So risk of infection was one. Sense of helplessness. So um, uh, when the pandemic first started, the lack of PPE was just, it was astounding how poorly prepared hospitals and other places were. And then when they tried to get PPE, the supply chain had basically either frozen or dried up. It just wasn't there. You couldn't even get a mask. And um, and that created this sense of helplessness because, again, we are the richest, most capable country in the whole entire world, and we can't even protect the people who are supposed to keep the entire society running, right? And so risk of infection, sense of helplessness, the moral injury. So moral injury, um, uh, I, as a psychiatrist, um, I'm going to give my, my interpretation of moral injury. I encourage you to uh, absolutely reach out to uh, educational psychologists um, uh, who work in this area. Uh, but it's the idea that you have a value, you have an understanding of how the world is, is working and is formed and what's valuable. And to have something challenge that and or break it, right? So, hey, I live in a society that is safe and values my voice. And then we have a pandemic where it's basically all, uh, um, uh, uh, all rules are suspended, do whatever, hoard whatever, hoard the toilet paper, um, uh, you know, put gas in bags, which is a terrible idea. Don't ever do that. Um, and so what do you do with that? Right. Because we 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 had a mutual understanding as a society of, hey, I'm going to not hurt you. But you're now re refusing to wear a mask. And if you're refusing to wear a mask, doesn't that hurt me? But you're not getting in trouble for it. 
uh, even though we're a country of quote unquote laws, right? So how do you manage that? So that moral injury uh, is super, super tough and it still is very pervasive even today. And so risk of infection, sense, sense of helplessness, moral injury, moral injury, and then the lack of social support. And so if you noticed that when the pandemic hit, everything kind of went virtual all at one time. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have access to the digital infrastructure to get shit done, right? Oh, we're going to, um, if you have kids, we're just going to put them online. Well, some people actually don't have access to the internet. Oh, well, you can just order your groceries online. Well, some people don't have a debit card to connect to uh, a, a food delivery service, right? So we, uh, th those four areas, so especially for frontline uh, uh, workers, hit them really hard because, hey, we thought we were doing what we're supposed to do. You work a full-time job, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. We're doing that. We're working a full-time job, yet I'm not being taken care of. Um, I, I am completely disconnected from people. I still have to show up to work and put myself at uh, risk. Um, and I don't feel like I'm getting any help because if y'all will remember, those uh, stimulus checks didn't come rushing out of the government. They came at a trickle and a fight. Um, and so, yeah, so what do you do with that? Well, yeah, you, you sit with it and you go, man, that is really messed up. Uh, and how can we create a society that values people who do the work that need to get done because they're crucial, it's vital? Um, how can we create a, a more just and equitable way of doing that? And so um, I pitch to you um, that that starts with having the conversation, which is why we're doing it on the break room right now. Um, as uh, corporate folks, um, especially kind of middle managers and up, uh, the first thing, y'all, uh, you have to keep in mind is you have to hold the people above you accountable. So culture of a company starts at the top. CEO, C-suite level, CFO, CIO, um, uh, uh, your human resources person. All of those folks are setting the, the cultural tone of the company. And if they don't hear from you, then you're not going to uh, build a just and equitable uh, workspace. And so um, hold them accountable. Ask them what they're doing to make sure that the people on the front line who are helping you do your job are protected and cared for. Ask them how much PTO they get. Ask them what type of uh, sick leave or um, uh, child um, uh, support. So child um, uh, ability to, you know, let the, um, them take, um, offer um, kids and child care and, and births of their kids. So uh, all of these things, um, somebody has to speak up for, unfortunately, because how power differentials work in the corporate space. A lot of people on the front line can't always try to advocate, or if they do, if they try to unionize, sometimes that backfires as well, because uh, some companies are just greedy and evil. Uh, and so I throw out to you, um, you in the middle and y'all upper middle management, and then of course C-suite, speak up. This is your time. We're, we're living in an age of uh, re uh, kind of a reckoning. Uh, and now's the time to speak up and be that ally. Um, um, as we talked about uh, in uh, the last couple of weeks, allyship means that you're going to be uncomfortable. You may actually even get in trouble for it, but you do it anyway, because it's important. And so that's how those folks in the middle um, can speak up. Uh, and I, I highly encourage you to do so um, if you um, if you want to actually make a change. So that's number one. Number two, you have to vote. At the end of the day, if you don't vote, I don't know what's going to change. So 
please make sure that whatever your local elections are, um, uh, when they are, make sure that you are voting. Make sure that you educate yourself about those, those issues. Number three, put your money where your mouth is, right? So if you're spending money with companies who are doing stupid, shady shit, they're going to continue to do stupid, shady shit because you are endorsing and complicit in stupid, shady shit. So please don't do that. Put your money where your mouth is. Buy from companies, buy local if you can, but buy, and if you're going to do a national or a corporate uh, company, that's fine, but make sure that you read through all of those promises that they made to black folks, all of those promises that they made to their uh, frontline workers, uh, all of those uh, uh, companies who were helping to buy pizza and bang pots as people are walking into the hospital and going to the grocery store. Make sure that you patronize those locations and those stores where um, they are being supportive. Uh, I think I want to say, I think it was Kroger who uh, gave a hero's bonus and then took it away, right? So the people working at Kroger were making quite a bit more money. And then turns out uh, after a while, they were like, well, I guess we're done. And then they stopped. And that's just asinine because uh, at the end of the, the day, yes, grocery is a razor thin profit margin business, but these major companies are not hurting um, in the grand scheme of things. So uh, demanding and asking for higher wages uh, better, safer workplaces, I think, are fair. And I'm a business owner, so I run a couple businesses. And one thing that I know is um, you have to create a just and equitable workplace where people feel safe and they feel supported and they feel valued. And that starts at the top. And so I work really hard to try to uh, cultivate that culture and pay people what they're worth. And so, yes, companies can do that. And you, uh, But sometimes you have to hold them accountable. So Alrighty, so those are the um, ways that you can hold uh, the uh, the folks uh, the in power. Uh, you can hold them accountable to make sure that you have a workplace where uh, frontline workers are valued. And so um, it's really funny. At one of our um, podcasts, we're totally going to talk about capitalism. And I, I, normally I would do that with my other co-hosts are here because we have slightly different approaches, but y'all will hear that when you hear it. So, all righty. So um, audience questions, I don't see any in the chat. But like I said, if you have any questions, especially after listening to the podcast, you can always submit those to the break room at living corporate Dot com. And as we uh, gear up to, uh, and we'll end a little bit early tonight, um, but let me get my, my phone out because um, I want to give you all my, the, the last nerve. And I've been thinking about this all week and I, I just, it just hurts my heart, y'all. It just really hurts my heart. So let's get to the clock and we're going to put 90 seconds on the clock. And uh, so what the, uh, to, as a reminder, what the last nerve is, is the opportunity to just go off. And so I'm going to go off about something. Uh, and time starts right now. So I don't know if y'all noticed, but on January 6th, um, we were all shown that there are white supremacists and, uh, and racists who don't give a damn about this country uh, because they went and violated one of the central buildings to the democracy. They just went in, tore things up, um, uh, killed people, killed officers, hurt people, destroyed property. And you would think that it would be in everybody's best interest 
to make sure that you investigate that, right? 9-11, we investigated it. Um, anytime that uh, Benghazi, we investigated it. And there are people literally right now in our government, Republicans, uh, again, quote unquote Republicans, who are saying, now nah, we're good. Uh, whatever the Justice Department is exploring is good. We don't need a bipartisan commission to do so. Do so. And y'all, that's straight up bullshit. Y'all know it. I know it. At the end of the day, uh, just like in the corporate world, if you don't hold the people accountable, then you're complicit in the shit. And I want, I say to y'all, Hold your representatives accountable. If you live in a district with uh, re uh, Republican uh, representation, call them, hold them accountable. Um, if you need to call them out on social media, you call them out on social media. We cannot let this one thing slide because if we let this one thing slide, they're going to do it again and again and again. And that's what Mitch McConnell does because he's a horrible, horrible person. Now, with all that said, do what you can do. Call, speak up, do not let this slide. At the end of the day, if we let this go now, it will only get worse. And so I'm asking you one last time, hold them accountable. Okay, so that is my last nerve. Um, I have really enjoyed uh, walking uh, through this journey with y'all today on The Break Room. Um, we try to be here every Thursday, so um, uh, catch us next week. Um, and uh, listen to the previous podcast because at the end of the day, learning and growing, especially in that mental health space, means that you are consistently um, uh, re-educating yourself about things that you knew and thought you knew and things that you don't know. So um, thanks so much, y'all. You have a wonderful night. Bye-bye.